0: I invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 today. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And while you find that, I want to just make mention of a couple of things. The first is I want to welcome back Doug Pittman from the Ukraine. Amen. I've been praying for him. And the Lord answered our prayers and brought him back to us safely. And so we want to just say thank you uh, to the Lord for doing that. I had a wonderful uh, time of ministry there. I also want to remind you that next Sunday is Christmas, in case you forgot. And uh, also remind you that we will be having service here, our regular scheduled service at 10 a.m. The kids will be in here with us. It will be a family-style service But we are going to worship the Lord like we did this morning. I have a really wonderful uh, Christmas message prepared from Luke chapter 2 that I know is going to bless you, and I encourage you to come on out for that. I was looking at the calendar, and typically we have Christmas on Sunday. We get to do this every six years. That's the typical pattern. The last time we had Christmas on Sunday was 2016, six years ago. But I was looking forward, and the next time we should have this would be six years from now, which would be 2028. But 2028 is a leap year, meaning that there's 29 days in February, which pushes Christmas off of uh, Sunday and onto Monday. So the next time we'll have Christmas on Sunday is going to be 2033, (laughs) 11 years from today. And so I was thinking, My kids are gonna, I'm gonna have a 22 year old, a 20 year old, an 18 year old. I'm only gonna have one kid the next time we have Christmas on a Sunday. I'll have a 16 year old. Charity will be 16 in 11 years. I'll be 52, you know. They'll have to get me up here with a cane or something, you know. Just so, oh, oh, come on, it's a joke. Come on, come on, come on, come on, goodness gracious, tough crowd this morning, goodness. So, 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 so you you ever say things you wish you could take back? Yeah. So. If you, if you have small children, if you have children that are seven years old or over, you will never be able to bring them to church on Christmas again. This is your last chance. If they're seven or older, next time this happens, we'll be, they'll be 18 years or older. And so uh, let's make a memory, parents, let's make a memory for our kids that we, when, when, when Christmas is on Sunday we go and worship the Lord. So I encourage you to come on out uh, on Sunday. We're going to have a wonderful time uh, worshiping God on Christmas. Uh, also, I want to just remind everyone uh, going along with that is that we will, of course, be having service the next Sunday, which will be January 1st. And so just reminding you that, uh, you know, keep your New Year celebration to uh, uh, a holy observance and uh, make sure that you leave enough celebrating for the Lord on January 1. Uh, I was talking to a friend, they're pushing their service back two hours on Chris on, on January 1. Uh, we're not doing that, uh, we'll just all have bloodshot eyes, but uh, we are starting on January 1, we are starting, we're going back into our series in Matthew and we will be starting uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount which is just an incredibly profound section of Scripture and a great way to start the new year. So I hope you'll join us for Christmas and New Year's as a church family. Uh, Also want to remind you that tonight we're having a really a phenomenal event called the Family Christmas Card at 6 o'clock. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, I think this is going to be one of the highlights for our church family for the whole year There's been a lot of work put into this program tonight, and a lot of families going to be bringing some songs, some readings. Um, There's a, I believe there's a dance, and so there's there's all kinds of stuff going on tonight with refreshments afterwards, so I hope you'll join us tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to have a wonderful time. Amen? Amen? Okay, so we're turning our attention to Philippians 2 today, and specifically verses 1 through 11. And so let's read this together. The Apostle Paul writing, he says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, it is a supreme grace to us that we have your revelation to us. Lord, without your word, we are in darkness. Without your word, we we simply stumble around and and grasp at things not knowing if they are true or if they are false but because of your word because of your truth because of your revelation that that lights and and shines into our world lord we we can know what is true and what is false we can know what is a a, a lie and, and what is not we can know what is sin and what is righteousness and it is because of your word Lord, as we spend time in your word, as we reflect on the word became flesh and dwell among us, Lord, that that your word would become so real to our hearts and to our lives today that we would live for you, that we would walk in, in light of your revelation to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've been looking at the last few weeks in this Christmas season, this Advent season, looking forward to... Uh, The day of Christmas, looking forward to celebrating the the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of Christ. We've been looking at some of the characteristics of God, some of God's character that is put on display in the incarnation, put on display in Christ's coming to us. You'll remember a few weeks ago that we looked at the generosity of God. We looked at how God is generous how he's generous to us? We looked at the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3:16, which tells us that God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son. We looked at that week the generosity of God. Last week, we looked at the faithfulness of God, that we serve a God who is faithful to keep His word, that God, to His people, had made promise after promise after promise about the Deliverer who would come, the Messiah who would come, the Savior who would come, the Son who would come, and that in Christ's coming, in Jesus' coming, that God proved himself to be faithful to keep his word. And therefore, we can trust God and we can trust his word because God is a faithful God. This morning, what we're looking at is what I find, honestly, to be the most astonishing of all of God's character traits. We're looking today at the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. The Apostle Paul begins this passage by calling on these saints, calling on these believers in Philippi calling them to live a life of humility, to to walk humbly with each other and with one another. We see this call in verse two through four. Let's look at it again. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. That means being united together, united together, tied together, bound together, and of one mind. And and having this this same mind, having this same love, having this unity of thought and belief, he calls them, therefore, to do nothing out of rivalry. Did you know that there's rivalries in the church? Can you believe that? He says, that's not to be our motivation, elevating ourselves, or, or conceit. But rather, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If that wasn't more hard enough, he, he makes it more difficult. He, in verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, if we're being honest here today and I advocate for that, I'm a big fan of honesty, especially in church. We would admit that this is a tall order. We would admit that on the surface, we would say, how can we do this? How can we be of the same mind? How can we be of the same love? How can we in humility count others more significant, more important than ourselves? How can we not just only be so concerned of our own interests and our own well-being, but also looking out for the the interests and the well-being of others? On the surface, we could almost say that this seems to be impossible. And I think that we could admit that, in fact, in our own strength, left up to ourselves, left up to, to our own abilities... This would be impossible. If we had to obey the, the, the instruction of the word of God in our own power, it would be a fool's errand. Because the human race is a selfish species. We are a selfish people. We live in an age of the self, a very selfish, selfish age. A very selfish selfish age. This caused a few years ago, the Oxford Dictionary to declare that the word of the year was the word "selfie" just a few years ago. So popular thinking about the self. These are co- let, me, let me just list for you some, some common ideas that that run through. The attitudes of our day, self actualization, self fulfillment, self promotion. You'll find no shortage of people discussing online the issue of self care and self love and self help. In fact, that'll be the largest section in the bookstore today self help. Self-improvement, raising your self-esteem, having a high self-worth. All of these phrases are are so common in our day today because we live in the age of self to the point where we even encourage self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. We hear that expressed in things like you deserve it. You des- How often do you hear that? You deserve it. To treat yourself. To indulge yourself. We live in this age of the self. These are the moods of our day. Noticeably absent from this list is self-sacrifice. How often do you hear about that out there? Or what about the way Jesus put it? If any man would come after me, he must deny himself. What a stark contrast. What what, what a huge gulf between the teaching of Christ and the moods of our day. One says you must follow your heart, indulge yourself, be your best self, 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 self. Live for yourself. And the other says you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. The, the contrast couldn't be any greater. The, the gulf couldn't be any larger. It is a 180 degree opposite from one another. The, the teaching of Christ and the world that we live in, the culture that we live in today. We live in a world that lives under the curse of sin, where sin has infiltrated the world, sin has come to the human race. All of our hearts, we are born in sin, we're born under sin. The Bible calls this disposition that we all have towards self, all have towards sin, iniquity, that we all have a natural bent away from the ways of God, away from the word of God, away from the teaching of Christ, and we have a bent towards ourselves, But we who are in Christ, the Bible says that we are new creations. We're not the way we were before we came to Christ. The Bible says that we have in Christ a new heart, that we've been given new desires, that we've been filled with his spirit, a new spirit. So that the apostle can then call on God's saints, those who have put their faith in Christ, those who have been born again through the power of the life and death and burial and resurrection of Christ, he can then call on God's people to live a life that is supernaturally humble, to live a life that isn't like the way the world lives. To live a life that is different, that isn't about self, but a life of humility that is about serving others. And how does the apostle encourage the Philippians to do this? He does so by pointing us and them to the humility of Christ. He, He draws their attention to the humility of Christ. We see this in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He directs our attention off of ourselves and onto Christ. You see, the cure, the antidote, if you will, to selfish living is to gaze upon Christ. It is to look unto Christ. It is to behold Christ and to behold him in all of his glory, but also all of his humility. And so he begins to paint a portrait. And of course, for us who are now in this Advent season, this, this Christmas season, this is actually a, a Christmas text talking about Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth. The humility of Christ. In verse 6, he says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. To, to understand the humility of Christ, If we ourselves are going to to walk in humility, we must understand the humility of Christ. And if we are to understand the humility of Christ, we must understand who he is. Who is Jesus? Who is this person that we're talking about? Who is this person that we're examining? Paul is very clear that Jesus is God. God. Jesus is God from eternity past. He is the second person of the Godhead existing for all eternity, he says here, in the form of God, as God. God by his very nature. Jesus is God. Paul couldn't be more clear here. Who is Jesus? He is God. He writes in Colossians chapter one that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is who Jesus is. If we're going to understand the manger, if we're going to understand the birth of Christ, if we're going to understand what happened on that old holy night that we sing about, we, we need to understand where this child came from. Who, who is it that was conceived in the Virgin Mary. Who who was it that was born on that night? Paul says that it was God himself. But it's not just Paul who makes this claim. In fact, the other apostles attest to this fact as well. We're very familiar with John chapter 1, verse 1, but I want to read it for you this morning where the Apostle John gives us the, the history, if you will, the, 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 the biography of, of where this child, where Jesus came from. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him." And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the one who was with God and who was God. In verse 14, John writes that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. The Apostle Paul declares it clearly. The Apostle John here writing for us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. After the resurrection in John chapter 20, There was a a disciple who who had some doubts. There was a disciple who who didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. There was a disciple who said famously, unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hands, I will not believe. That disciple, of course, was Thomas, Thomas, known as Doubting. Doubting Thomas. But when Jesus, risen from the dead, risen in victory, having conquered Satan and sin and death and hell, having taken back the keys of the kingdoms of the world from Satan, appears to Thomas. What does Thomas say? Thomas' declaration is my Lord And my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas goes from doubting Thomas to believing Thomas. He joins the chorus with Paul and and John. The writer of Hebrews likewise writes for us about who this Jesus is, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. When we celebrate Christmas and the birth of Christ, let us never lose sight of who that baby is in the manger. Let us never lose sight of what is clothed not in just the swaddling cloth, but in human flesh. It's deity in that manger. It's the creator God entering in to his own creation. That's the witness of the apostles. That's the witness of the writer of Hebrews. But do you know that's also the witness of Jesus himself? From the words of Jesus himself, Jesus, when he gets into an argument with the religious leaders about who he is, about his identity, Jesus says in John 8, that before Abraham was, I am. Now that's very bad grammar, but very good theology. Jesus says, I am that I am. Jesus says, you want to know who I am? I am the I am. He says, I'm the God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. That's who I am. He says, I'm the God who called Abraham out and made promises to him and made covenant with him and said I would give uh, the, the land to his descendants and, and that his descendants would be as the sea of the, the, the sand of the seashore and as the, the stars in the sky that the nations of the world would be blessed through him. I'm the God who promised that to Abraham because I am that I am. He says, I'm the God who made covenant with Isaac. I'm the God who, who came and wrestled with Jacob. I am that I am. That's the words of Jesus. That's who he says that he is. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, It says, the Lord God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Listen, that baby born in Bethlehem is God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. According to the gospel writers, according to the apostolic witness, according to the writer of Hebrews, according to Jesus himself, Jesus is the eternal creator, God. Now there is no shortage of people today who would try to convince us of the opposite, who would try to convince us that Jesus is something less than God, That Jesus was a a good teacher, sort of like the first hippie. He walked around with long hair and sandals and and just kind of said some pithy sayings. There are others who would say that Jesus was a good example, that that he showed us the way. He showed us the way of love. He showed us the way of self-sacrifice are others who would say that Jesus was, was a prophet. He, he spoke on behalf of God. But he was not God. But what you must know and what you must understand is that these ideas of Jesus, that he was only a teacher, that he was only an example, that he was only a, a prophet, wherever these ideas come from, they do not come from the word of God. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus is much more than a teacher example or a prophet. You must get rid of the idea that Jesus is merely a good teacher. You must get rid of the idea that Jesus is merely an example to follow, that He came to show us a way. You know, Jesus Himself said, I am the way. You must get rid of the idea that He was merely a prophet. Was he all of those things? Yes, of course he was, but he is infinitely so much more. Jesus is God, fully and truly God. This is what the Apostle Paul is pressing into our hearts here. Jesus in the form of God. From everlasting to everlasting. Jesus Christ is God. In verse 6, he continues, though in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is an astonishing statement that Jesus, creator God, seated on heaven's throne, ruling and reigning as creator of the universe. The the, the vision of Jesus on the throne is enough to put prophets on their face. Isaiah seeing this picture of Christ on his throne falls to his face and declares what? Woe is me, I am undone. Just a glimpse of the glory of God, Christ in his splendor is enough to put everybody on their face. And Christ lives and Christ rules and Christ reigns on his throne, receiving exalted worship from heaven's hosts, the divine rights as the creator of the universe and the creator of all things, and honor and glory and and majesty beyond what we could even imagine. This is where Christ lives. This is where he is from but he chooses not to cling on to that position or to use these divine rights for himself or his own advantage. Think about how foreign of an idea this is. We we cling so tightly to places of prominence, to, to ideas of glory. We all cling so tightly to the things that we want and desire. So think about if, if you went to your favorite restaurant and they set you at your favorite table. And then, then somebody walks and they say, actually, we're going to need to move you and we're going to move you all the way back to the bathrooms. And you're going you're to sit in the table right in front of the bathroom and so, no, by the way, all the toilets are overflowing. <laughs> you would cling so tightly to that table. Such an insignificant thing. But Christ on heaven's throne relinquishes the glory, it relinquishes all of the worship, it relinquishes all of the praise. He, he surrenders his glory. He surrenders his rights. Of course, never once surrendering his deity. He is God in eternity past. He is God when he walked the earth. He is God now seated on the throne, ruling and reigning. He is Emmanuel when he was here, God with us. But it says that he did not count this equality with God something to be grasped, but rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing made himself nothing. He, he emptied himself of these divine prerogatives, these divine rights, this divine glory, allowed his glory to be veiled in human flesh. There's that moment in the Gospels where the disciples go with Jesus up on the mountain and, and in a moment his, his, his the, the veil of his glory is pulled back and it says his, his face shined like the sun. They, they beheld it for a moment, for an instant. And it, it was so shocking that it, it, it scrambled their brains. They didn't even know what to say, what how to respond, what they even saw. But he made himself nothing. He, he emptied himself. And Paul tells us how he did this by the next few statements, that he made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. A servant. Literally, that's the the Greek word doulos, which is slave. He made himself a slave. A slave to what? A slave to the will of the Father. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane as as Jesus is praying, as Jesus is laboring, as he's about to go to the cross and he surrenders his will to the Father's will, taking the form of a slave. Not only that, not only a, a servant but and a slave, it says he made himself nothing by being born in the likeness of men. Try to understand the downgrade, if you will, From heaven's throne to Bethlehem's manger. Jesus veiled his glory in human flesh. Born in a manger, came as a baby. Had to endure all of the the temptations and the trials of life. He had to go through adolescence. What a humiliating experience. Why did he do all of this? Well, he tells us he became a servant. He was born in the likeness of human flesh and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus leave his throne? Why did Jesus... Be born of the Virgin? Why was Jesus born in a manger? Why did Jesus veil his divinity in humanity? Why did he do all of that? For some great and glorious task, actually, he was born to die, literally. And not just any death, the most wretched and horrible of deaths of all. Paul puts it here, he includes it in here death on a cross. It's hard to fathom leaving that for the cross. Leaving the great throngs, the great multitudes of heavenly hosts worshiping and bowing at your feet in glory to be attended to by shepherds. Oh, the glories and the riches of Christ Our minds cannot even begin to comprehend this type of humility. Jesus radiates with the glory of a billion sons, but he humbles himself. Who does that? Seriously, who does that? Who would leave all of that behind? Who would sacrifice so much? And when he comes, he comes to a people who don't even receive him. He's rejected when he comes, he's despised when he comes. He's treated so poorly that we hang the Son of God on a cross. Jesus, what could compel such a person? To forsake heaven's crown, to wear the crown of thorns, to forsake the throne of heaven, to bear a cross of shame, a cross that belongs to each one of us. The death he died is the death we deserve. What could compel such a person to walk in such humility? It's only one thing, of course it is love. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we could ever make a step towards him, before we could ever look towards Christ, he already died to redeem us. He already shed his blood to save us. His love for us is that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Do you know this Jesus? Not just the baby in the manger, but the one who lived the life without sin and died to redeem sinners. Do you know this Jesus? To know him is to love him and to cling to his work and to cling to his cross. To love him is to serve him and to bow at his feet like the shepherds and to bow at his feet like the magi. And to serve him, the Apostle Paul is making this argument, to serve him is to serve others in his name. When we come to Christ as as baby Christians, we, we hear the gospel message, we hear of the good news of what he has done for us. We hear how he came to seek and to save the lost and how he came to serve humanity. We read the stories of of how he washed the disciples' feet, of how he humbled himself, and, and we need Christ to serve us, and he does serve us. We want him to serve us, and he serves us. But hear me in this. Christ does not serve us because he is less than us. Christ does not serve us because he is any way inferior to us. He serves us purely out of his love and his humility. He serves us because Christ is the most humble person to ever live. He serves us because he loves us. And when you truly realize who he is, When you realized who it is, who has served you, you, like Peter, in embarrassment say, you would wash my feet? You would serve me? It can't be that way. As Peter says, "You, you, you can't wash me if I need to wash your feet. But Jesus says, unless I wash you, unless I serve you, unless I cleanse you, you have no part in me. And so Peter, of course, goes from one extreme to the other. He says, not just my feet, but wash my head, wash my whole body, just cleanse me all over. When you realized who has served you, that the man from Nazareth is is not just a humble carpenter, but he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. As, as Paul says, that, that because of the work that Christ did, God has raised him up and highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at this name, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you realize who it is who has served you, you likewise fall on your knees in worship. You fall at his feet in adoration, realizing that it is us who should be serving him, that we should be living for him. Every waking moment, every thought belongs to him. Every part of our life belongs to him. And yes, Even if need be, we would die for him. And this is how you and I are called to live as Christians. In radical submission to the Father's will. To obey him and to serve him no matter what the cost. Whatever sacrifice we must make to follow Christ. It can never and will never be compared to the sacrifice that he made to save us. We are called then to humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself. No one has ever stooped so low as Christ did. But the reason he stooped so low was that he might lift us up with him to gather us to himself, to pull us out of our sin, to pull us out of our shame, to pull us out of our brokenness, that we would declare like the psalmist that he has drawn me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay, and that he has set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Apostle Paul writing about this in 2 Corinthians 8 says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So that we now who are in Christ, our life of sin, our record of sin, has been nailed to the cross and that we truly are a new creation. That we truly have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Charles Spurgeon writes this about this passage that our highest thoughts cannot comprehend the height from which he came, the depth to which he has descended is immeasurably below any point we have ever reached and the height from which he came is inconceivably above our loftiest thought and so when we think towards Christ coming when we think towards Christmas when we think towards the babe in a manger let us this Christmas season marvel at the humility of Christ that put him there And let us, as we marvel at Christ's humility, likewise walk in humility with one another. Let us, in that same spirit, serve one another, love one another, put others first. Not looking out for me and my life and my way, but following Jesus who is the way. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, to fulfill the obligations of it is in our own strength impossible. But with you, God, all things are possible. Well, we thank you for sending your son, born of the virgin, born under the law, who perfectly fulfilled all the law's demands, who clothes us in his righteousness, a righteousness not our own, but now clothed in his righteousness through his atoning work, we can now approach your throne of grace with boldness. And so, Lord, as we come to the table today, we come thankful. But we also come reminded of the humility which made it possible. And Lord, that you would help us through the power of your spirit to likewise walk in the humility of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.